MGM presents Westworld. Your attention, please. We will soon be landing at Westworld, the ultimate resort. We have you on grid five, over. It consists of three worlds of the past. Locking in now. Worlds where you can live out your every fantasy. There's Roman world, the lusty, decadent delights of Imperial Pompeii. Notify ground crews. Medieval world, chivalry and combat in 13th century Europe. And Westworld, lawless violence on the American frontier of the 1880s. Each resort is maintained by reliable computer technology and peopled by lifelike robot men and women. Let's stand by for resort activation. Ready on six, on five, on four, on three, on two. Activate now. Our robots are programmed to provide you with an unforgettable vacation. Dinner at seven, breakfast at 6.30. Get lunch on your own. Don't look like much here, but we have everything. Mean to tell me he's a robot? What'll it be? Uh, vodka martini on the rocks with a twist of lemon. Very dry, please. Just give him whiskey. He's new in town. Many elements of the Delos Resort are potentially dangerous. That's part of the appeal. Go on. You say something, boy. Kill him. Your move. Technology is designed to provide all this in complete safety. In Westworld, frustrations find release. Desire ends in satisfaction. Funny handling. And all in a controlled environment. That's not supposed to happen. We know you'll enjoy your stay in Westworld. Hold it. The ultimate resort. Let me do it this time. Where nothing, nothing can possibly go wrong. I'm shot. Go wrong. Raw. Go wrong. Oh, my God. Shut down. Shut down immediately. MGM, starring Yul Brynner, Richard Benjamin, and James Brolin. Westworld, the ultimate resort. Boy, do we have a vacation for you. For you. For you. For you. For you. of 70 movies we saw in the 70s. This one actually might be a movie that we saw in the 70s. Right, I was thinking the same thing. I've been wondering, Scott Lucas. Hi, I'm Ben Reiser. Across from me is Scott Lucas. Hi, Ben. I'm Scott. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, sorry you missed the earthquake episode. Did you ever get to watch it, or you didn't bother? No, I still haven't watched it, but I listened to it, and then I had to skip over the middle because I was like, if I do watch this, it's going to be all ruined for me but oh, uh okay but yeah i was sorry to miss it that's okay uh glad to have you back on board 
uh, for a movie that uh, came up. We were, Scott and I do this other podcast called Lifers, which you should all listen to because it's great. And we probably talk maybe more about movies on that podcast than we do on this We did one. last night, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, on last week's uh, Lifers, we were talking a little bit about um, Frank Perry and Diary of a Mad Housewife and Richard Benjamin. And I said... I'd always been a Richard Benjamin fan back from my Westworld days, having seen Westworld at the 1976 Star Trek convention at the New York Hilton, um, where I spent the whole day watching movies in a ballroom. I th- they must have been showing them on 16 millimeter. I don't even know, but wow. yeah. I don't know if it was 16 or 35, but to my memory, and I thought a couple of years ago, I looked this up online and was able to find like a like a program, like a, somebody had taken a picture of an actual paper program and the listing of the movies. But my memory is, I think on that day, I saw for the first time The Andromeda Strain, Westworld, Silent Running. Wow. I know, right? Like, so I went to the Star Trek convention and all I did was sit on the, on the floor of a ballroom watching movies. Right. Like they, they didn't even have a seat ready for me. Uh, uh, and then I think after those, after like, Six hours of movies, I think my friend Steve Ment and I wandered over to the main room, which is where all the vendors are selling, you know, eight by 10 glossies of, uh, I don't know, Star Trek, <laughs> Star Trek celebrities and uh, other assorted science fiction ephemera that you could buy. And of course, there were people dressed in costumes. And I believe that most of the cast of the original Star Trek was there. But I don't remember being in the room where they were sort of on stage talking much at all. Because I think that was the most crowded room. And I didn't really care. But I think I think I might have seen uh, Nichelle Nichols. Uhura? Uhura? God, I don't even know how to say it. That hua, <laughs> I saw that hua on stage. To our Rossi, you are a hua. Maybe Chekhov, maybe maybe George Takei was there. I don't know. Uh, anyway, but anyway, so I said that, and Scott said, "Yeah, Richard Benjamin Westworld. That was that was my favorite movie as a kid." And I'm like, "Well, why has this not come up? Why have you not offered up Westworld as a movie that you saw in the '70s that we should talk about on this show?" So I don't know. It's it's I've given you some lists and. Uh, yeah, but your lists always seem to be like, I'm trying to come up with something. I think I'm done with movies I've actually seen in the 70s, but here's some 70 movies that I would think would be fun. It just never occurred about. to me. You know, I mean, I don't usually put things like Taxi Driver on those lists um, hmm. and things like that. But, you know, Westworld is a movie that yeah, definitely I would have seen in the 70s on television. I think there was, there was showing it since 75. And... So, I mean, this is a movie that, like, has informed a lot of things for me. Like, you know, it's one thing that you forget about this is it is a dystopian science fiction movie. You know, it is in the future and it's got all those things, you know, people walking around in the white lab coats and, you know, uh, the tape machines running and all these things are nothing can go wrong is said over and over. You know, it's got all those elements that. Like, you know, when I watch the movie, I'm like, is, is this from another movie? Am I thinking, you know, it's just something that's been in my mind. And I've seen it on, saw it on television so many times when I was a kid. You know, the 330 movie, uh, 
during prime time where I guess it was longer and I had more scenes in it and stuff like that. So if there's things that you remember and they're not there when you watch the movie, you're not crazy. You would have seen those things on television. Yeah. But what do you think about that? Cause I read that today too. And the, the scenes that they describe being part of the longer version all seem to be in the movie to me. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm buying that. They're not as long. I mean, there's when I watch the movie, I'm like, I want more of this or I want more of that. Uh, really? Those things. Yeah. So when I looked it up, I was like, those things are on in the television version. And maybe that's why I want them. I mean, one thing that I feel like Roman world really gets short shrift in the movie. There's not a lot of Roman world stuff. But it's hard to believe that there'd be more Roman world or at least anything good about Roman world that would have made it to the TV cut that wasn't in the theatrical cut because Roman world, all they do when they talk about Roman world, the beginning of the movie on the airplane is yeah. say, this is where there's looser morals. And so it's like, Ooh. yeah, Roman world is where you have an orgy for a week. Um, relaxed morals. Yeah, relaxed the guy's morals. wife is, yeah. yeah, the guy's <laughs> wife is lights up at that. And he's like, uh oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that old but, thing about like, oh, I'm going away on a vacation. I'm going to cheat on my wife, and then he looks at her. He's like, oh, she's going to cheat on me too, you know? Right. But here's the thing about this dystopian, and you're right, it is just a, a futuristic dystopian story. But it's it's the most entertaining, fun loving. It's like this is a great popcorn movie. Yeah. And uh, please bring back the dystopian movies that are actually fun to watch in addition to being dystopian, you know, that aren't like children of men that are just like a nonstop misery show for for two hours. (laughs) And also, here's the two things I'm here. I'm here to celebrate, speaking of longer TV cuts, which maybe there's 10, because it would have been a two hour time slot, right? So, and there would have been 20 minutes, at least a commercial. So, we're talking about 10 minutes sprinkled over the course of, I don't... I'm still not buying it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's some. I haven't. Why are you not buying it? What, what, what do you? What, what do you? Th- why do you think they would lie? Uh, I just think Wikipedia. Who the fuck knows what they're saying? And by the way, has you like a ki- contrarian well, like Michael Crichton was? Well, yeah, yeah, I didn't realize there's a bunch of stuff about Michael Crichton. I didn't realize. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I didn't realize how much of a whack job contrarian he was. Climate change denier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's weird. And I never, I don't think I realized that he never actually practiced medicine. I, I always oh, thought that I didn't, he, I didn't know that. Yeah. He got the degree, but never put it to use. I always felt like he, he was to medical fiction. What Scott Turow was to law fiction, but that's not true. Well, I don't know. Now that's, that's something I did. Scott Turow actually practice law. I think he did. I think he okay. practiced law here in Chicago. Right. And Crichton was from Chicago as well. Right. Well, not a lot of, interestingly, not a lot of Crichton stuff was actual medical fiction in the sense that, like, these things take place in a hospital and this is about doctors and patients. Uh, you know, he did write, he did come up with ER. And, right. and I think he had an even earlier version of, the, of sort of an ER idea that nobody wanted to buy, like, 10 years before he came up with ER. But most of his stuff is, like... Non, you know, it's not like Scott Turow where everything is sort of legal, a legal based drama of some kind. But right, but, but there's a was su- more like, yeah, science fiction theory. Science is involved in these things. But interestingly, the one that comes closest, which I think is Coma, is actually mm. based on a novel by somebody else. That's one of the few things that Crichton did that he that that story isn't his, and that. 
And actually, Coma is a movie that I thought we might do. And I watched a couple months ago and was like, yeah, this is fun. This is another fun movie. From the I haven't series. seen Coma in a long time. Like, I, I've seen all of his movies except for the train robbery one. Uh, and I don't really oh. remember too much about any of them or, or being that impressed with them. But hmm. this one was, you know, for me, this is this is the best uh, you know, other than Jurassic Park. Are you in a, it's basically are, the same movie. Are you not an Andromeda Strain fan? I've seen it. I can't remember a single oh. thing about it. Oh, you know? okay. We should do that, too, because that was... Do you a, think it's better than Westworld? Um, I think it might be just about as good as Westworld. Huh. Um, and he didn't direct it. Robert Wise directed it. Nice. Robert, okay. Robert Wise, who still who wasn't even surpassed by Steven Spielberg recently in the in their competing no, no. visions of West, no, no. the West Side Spielberg's story. great, but he, but yeah, it's his West Side Story is in no in, no danger of going. Okay, away. but I want to. I'm here for two main things. My two main things I want to bring to the table is one, celebrate the economy of this film. Uh huh. That it's fucking 88 minutes, the theatrical cut. And I think does everything it needs to do and then some establishes its brilliant premise, doesn't belabor that point, just rolls with it. And then you've got this fucking thing that's more that's so much more built like, uh, you know, sort of a classic Hollywood, like almost like a, you know, like a B movie length. And it's like, we're going to tell this story. We're telling it clean and simple. We're not, there's nothing. We're not trying to build a fucking franchise. It's like the anti HBO Westworld is what you're trying to say. It it absolutely is. And I could talk for days about that pile of shit. But, um, (laughs) and then the other thing I thought was interesting to look at was here's another guy. And this is on the heels of being for me sort of mildly disappointed by licorice pizza about filmmakers who come out of the gate and seem to have all of their shit together and and Mm -hmm. and their first three or four films seem like there's nothing this guy can't do he's totally in charge of his craft he knows exactly how to tell a story he has all these great cinematic ideas uh, and then at some point things start to go wrong and I don't really understand it. I mean, other than the fact that like, you know, just because you can come up with one or two good things doesn't mean you're going to be able to keep on coming up with stuff. But just from a but I don't think anybody thinks Crichton is a cinematic auteur, you know? No, but if but based on Westworld and Coma and, um, you know, in the movies that he didn't direct, but but were made like Andromeda strain based on those three movies. You'd think that there'd be like, I watch Westworld today, you know, after, and I've seen it, you know, I don't know, 20 or 30 times probably in my right. life. And it still holds up in a way that I can't understand how the guy who wrote and directed this also wrote and directed looker and a runaway. Right. <laughs> like, how did that happen? Is it cocaine? Is it drugs? What the fuck went on with Michael Crichton in the 80s that that he was responsible for movies that are incompetent on every level? Like, right, everything but about this movie is like the casting seems brilliant. Right. It works. It yeah. works. It, it, but he was always into the, the high concept. I mean, I remember, mm-hmm. you know, well, I wanted to see Looker so bad when it came out. Um Mm-hmm. I didn't for years, 
but the, he always knew how to package what he was doing, even if it was bad. Like even Runaway would seem like something that was like, wow, this has got to be a great movie. It wasn't, but you know, it felt like it would be. Even even in Runaway, like the the sort of robot, the little nanobots or whatever mm-hmm. that are. I mean, there's it's such a far cry from from the robots in Westworld. See, see there's always a technological aspect that mm-hmm. Crichton seems to be the most interested in. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that scene where, where the scientists and doctors are talking about a disease of machinery. I feel like that's where Crichton's heart is in this movie. Like he. There is a longer version of that scene. And, he, he, you know, if he could have done it, it would have went on for a half an hour of just those people talking about well, you know, theories and stuff like that. Yeah, but I also saw a quote from Crichton today about the longer cut of Westworld. Is that when he watched the... Too depressing. Cut. No, he just said it was long and boring. Yeah. <laughs> he said it was really boring and he cut it. He cut it down. It wasn't yeah. anybody coming to him and saying, you need to cut this down. He hacked all that stuff out of it. Right. And I think, there you go. He's smart. I think, yes, he's got his interests. And there are th- certain things that, like, he's always going to want to harp on. the techno- man, Man's relationship with technology, man's relationship with science, man's relationship Nature with, finds the, a way. with the mechanical world. But, but Or man's uncomfortableness with technology and how, how mankind fucks up its relationship with these things that it's built and let get out of control. I think. And but but not at the sacrifice in these early days of telling a good ripping yarn, like a great fun story. Right. I mean, a really I think a really smart thing that this movie does is it's it's it it plays as a comedy for the first 45 minutes of its 90 minute running time. Yes, it is a comedy. Yeah, and then it's not and that combination, the tonal shift works wonderfully right. in a way that to me signals that is somebody who's thinking, if not cinematically, at least surrounds himself with professionals who know how to bring out the cinematic elements in his story. But somebody who is thinking, thinking about the importance of telling a good story in service of these sort of philosophical conceits that he is mm. interested in. And I think by the time we get to Looker and Runaway, he's not telling a good story and he's recycling these philosophical conceits, but in a much less interesting or coherent way. Right. Not, not well, that there are millions a... of holes to punch in Westworld, but you oh, don't want to because you're enjoying the movie. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is a thing that that's come up on this, on this show a lot. Like people who are like, killing it in the 70s and couldn't hack it in the 80s you know it's it's a common theme you know we were talking about it with michael ritchie uh you know we were talking yeah. about uh carpenter there's there's hooper. lots of guys. we're talking about toby right. hooper who couldn't quite cut it after you know for you just one feature yeah romero but i feel like there's a couple different kinds of filmmakers there's filmmakers who you know there's filmmakers who are, you know, I think unabashedly great filmmakers like John Carpenter or George Romero, who at some point, you know, get burnt out or they right. they get old and they get tired and they start taking projects for money that they're not really invested in. And they sort of run out of things that are exciting for them, but they still need a paycheck and just start doing stuff or they just can't raise the money to do movies the way that they would want to or without or their interests 
or their in- interests don't align align with the zeitgeist anymore. You know, so like the zeitgeist and people in charge of that start remaking their old movies because they don't really need them anymore. They need their old ideas. Right. I think that's well, what you sure. could see happening with Carpenter and Romero. And, and I'm sure there's an element. And, you know, you can speak to this, too, as somebody who's been doing his art form for such a long time where you're like, I, well, I've done that. I want to do something else. Right. I want to try a different thing. Like, I've already proven I can do this one thing about as good as it can be done. I want to do other things. And I feel like there's a little of that that probably goes on with Paul Thomas Anderson, where it's yeah, like, I've done, say, yeah. I've done Boogie, do Boogie Nights. Nights again. I've right, done exactly. Magnolia. And right. so licorice pizza is not going to be that. And fuck you for looking for it. <laughs> right. No, I get it. I was just, I was just going to say that. Yeah. You know, one of the things I hate about doing this show is everything, every time I think I have a good point, oh, you shit. get there first before I do. So I want to get to a good point before you do. And I'm sure you're thinking the same thing. This must have been John Carpenter's favorite movie. Yes. I mean... The last third of it is the last third of Halloween. It's crazy. Uh, that's something that didn't occur to me until watching it again yesterday, where I was like, wait, all this stuff is Michael Myers at the end of Halloween, all these fake deaths. And like, I can't yep. think of a movie that did it before this one. And the music. Yeah. Like how at that, at that point, a new theme is introduced and it, and they ride that theme right until the end of the movie. How would you describe that experimental noise that we start hearing as soon as Yul Brynner kills James Berlin, it's it's either it's like the sound of a dog or a horse shaking itself off, or a piece of cardboard in a fan. It's this weird thing. Yeah, there's so great, sort of like a piece of metal shaking, or and with a zither. You know, it's, it's it's this really great, great, great sound that is sort of sort of a freaky futuristic riff on on a, on Morricone. You know, and the spaghetti western stuff that he was doing. Yeah, and it's almost like the sound of like a chill running down your spine. Yeah, it's really, really, really good. And then the way he augments it with there's like a, a sort of a bass line at first, and then later on with a sort of do 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 type of thing. Um, it's a it's a really great score, and and that's one of the, when you were talking about the shift in tone, like he uses these really cheesy western stuff when they're in Westworld and he uses that uh, cheesy, you know, medieval music. Uh, and that's one of the things for a long time, I was like, Michael Crichton has a real problem with tone, but you're right. He doesn't like he's reveling in all the cliches like that, that bar fight. They do all the bar fight cliches, like drag them across the bar, smash people into the table, do everything. Cause that's, what you you're going to do. It's like the filmmakers and the characters, they're all enjoying the cliches. Right. And then boom, the last third happens and that new music comes in and it's like, well, right. That's over. And, and it's funny because at one point James Brolin says, you know, the beds are uncomfortable because this is the way things really were. And it's so not true. This right. is, they're not in the West, the way the West was They're in the West, the way Hollywood presented the West exactly. to everyone for, for four decades. And, I think that that's another really clever and somewhat subtle thing that Crichton does and his filmmaking team, because I'm loath to give him an, too much of the credit for how this thing works cinematically. But the fact is that the that the that the shooting style of this film and the, the lighting and the soundtrack and all that stuff is very much when they're in Delos and when they're in Westworld or Western World, which is what they really call 
Westworld in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's weird that they don't just call it Westworld in the movie. That At some point, I have a feeling like Westworld was like a, maybe they came up with the name of the movie after they made the movie. Yeah. But, but that it's all, it's all designed to look like a Hollywood, like a TV, like a TV Western. There's the flat lighting. And right. then, and then also there's all this. Uh, with something that didn't, of course, didn't never occur to me as a kid, but it's like they're doing all this Sam Peckinpah slow motion stuff throughout, yeah. which is fantastic. And I really think they do it as well as Peckinpah does it. Like, I'll put those, I'll, you know, the, the, I love the blood squibs in this movie yeah. are great. All yeah. those fight scenes are great. All the gunfights are great. The staging of them is really, really competent and sometimes sophisticated. That sword duel in medieval world is really well done. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, but it's not the kind of thing you think of when you're watching it. You're just enjoying it. And then it's only like rewatching and rewatching and saying, well, this is not just, I mean, there's some real thought behind this and they really knew what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's two things that you brought up. And, and one is, for a long time, I didn't even know this was a theatrical movie. I thought it was a TV movie. And you talk about the flat lighting and, you know, and a lot of the people that worked on this, they never worked in anything else other than TV, for the most mm-hmm. part. Like the music and the cinematography, that was done by guys who did a lot of TV stuff. And the, the music, by the way, Fred Carlin, he did the music for Lucan. And, and, and here's another... <laughs> Here's yeah. another bit of Licorice Pizza. He also did the score for Yours, Mine, and Ours, which is enjoying a moment now in Licorice Pizza. Um, but the other thing was, there. this was this time in the 70s when there was a lot of talk about the death of the American Western, right? Mm-hmm. And this was, a clever to, this was a clever way to make a Western and to make it feel hip as well. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah. Absolutely. And, but, but when, when the, switch flips in this movie mm-hmm. the whole style of the film flips yeah. and suddenly it's revealed that these guys know how to stage scenes and shoot scenes that don't look anything like tv that right. don't look anything like what you've been watching for the first 45 minutes and as you say that last 20 minutes of the film that's in the underground chamber and all that stuff is beautifully shot with much more sort of shadowy compositions and deep focus and a really sm- a really smart cat and mouse chase that keeps you everything is working to keep you in as much suspense as and i remember being terrified yeah. sitting on the ballroom of the new york hilton watching this thing i was terrified it's and that so last good chase. yeah you're right when that switch is flipped it it just it's like all right here we go and and it doesn't disappoint you no know, i mean i was reading some reviews at the time where they said the problem was that part like gene siskel didn't like it when it became a chase thing i was like you're nuts it is brilliant it's a lot it i was going through this period where i was like this movie's a little sloppy and it, it does have wild tone changes but they're completely on purpose and and i think Crichton's in control you know i wouldn't i i I don't think of him as a filmmaker i think of him as an author so uh maybe you're right about the people that he surrounded himself with yeah but i also think that i mean i don't know the story i don't know what his story is I think there's something that happens when you're good at more than one thing. People have a hard time not pigeonholing you as that one thing. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that after this, this fairly brief run as a filmmaker, uh, 
he then he had enough. <laughs> he reverted back to to being right. like more of a full time novelist, and you know, and then when he dipped his toe back in, I think he had lost. I think he was on. I think he was like snorting coke. He had a ton of money. I think. I think it didn't. I think things didn't matter to him anymore in a way. <laughs> this is I total think, you know, it, total speculation. Total speculation. <laughs> or you know, it was like Citizen Kane. He's like he thought it'd be fun to make some movies, and and he did that. You know. And then once he, he repurposed this great concept with dinosaurs, I mean, Jesus, talk about a million dollar idea. It's like, you know what? Westworld was great. But what <laughs> yeah. if I did it with dinosaurs? I'll bet that would make a lot of money. That's a good point because I'm sure when Jurassic Park first came out, I had that thought that this is just Westworld with dinosaurs. Yeah. You know, even just the concept. But, but, I haven't, I didn't, I haven't thought of that in a long time. And I didn't think of it until you said it just now. Like, oh, oh yeah, right. right. It is the same fucking thing with dinosaurs. <laughs> it's the same movie. <laughs> and I love it for it. I, I, I have no problem with it. You know, yeah. I'm like, I like people who have obsessions and I like seeing those obsessions play out in different ways. One of the reasons why I love Paul Schrader. Yeah. Um, so if Crichton has this obsession with theme parks, I, I'm for it. Yeah. You know, let's go. I mean, that's not what his obsession is, but I like <laughs> right. to see it manifest in different ways. Oh, I did not know until today that he wrote a bunch of novels under different pen names in the 60s. Uh, one of which got turned into a novel that, uh, that that got turned into a film by Blake Edwards, which I've never seen, but saw an ad for in a, when we were looking through things that played this week on some previous episode, a movie called The Carry Treatment. Huh. Now I kind of want to watch that movie. You can't go wrong with Blake Edwards. Oh, you can go wrong with Blake Edwards, but you can also go right with Blake Edwards. Well, <laughs> I was watching, I watched the Pink Panther a couple weeks ago. That was on my list. Way, was it? Well, Revenge of the Pink Panther. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's a good one. But the original Pink Panther is interesting to me because there just isn't enough Peter Sellers. It's weird to no. me that Blake no. Edwards thought that David Niven and Robert Wagner were as funny or funnier than than uh, Peter Sellers in Pink Panther. He spends as much or more time with them. Was David Niven and Peter Sellers, were they good buddies? Because they were in a lot of movies together around that time, like Casino oh. Royale. Wait, no. Peter Sellers wasn't. He was in Casino Royale, right? Peter Sellers is definitely in Casino Royale. But that's they after all, but that's after this out. stuff. So I think that I think that they probably did stuff after Pink Panther because of the success of Pink Panther. Uh, the Beatles wanted a party with Peter Sellers. That didn't work out too well. No, but Peter Sellers just seems like a total weirdo. Even in Get Back. <laughs> even in Get Back, where I'm busy just being annoyed by Michael Lindsay Hogg the whole time, I, I took a couple minutes out to say, boy, Peter Sellers is a weird dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So here's the thing. So in in the spirit of the economy of this movie coming in 88 minutes, we're going to try to hold ourselves to this 88 minute time limit for us. And we're 30 minutes in, which is fine. I think we're doing just fine. I think we've actually, I've, I've blown my wad already. I don't think I have anything else to say. No, uh, I got two, I got, okay. So I have, let's go, let's go scene by scene. We had a, I had a complaint lodged at me. It wasn't Portnoy's complaint, was it? No, but that's that's a good um, whatchamacallit, time. Richard Benjamin? So the complaint was, uh, 
the fan of the show who listened to the earthquake episode love the episode love the show stop reading the wikipedia plot summaries those oh, just right caught you right and well no i admitted it f- fully mike mcpadden used to i believe write he used to do this the sort of the scene by scene summaries that we would go by and i think he wrote his own and he's he's a good writer, so he right. he could do it. I'm sort of like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Uh, but here we go. Okay, so the movie starts with a Delos commercial with a reporter interviewing recent guests. Uh, that reporter's a robot, right? Oh, do you think so? I do. Huh. I think so. I mean, there, there's a certain invasion of the body snatchers thing to this. Uh, they're like, is that one of them? Is that one of them? You know, and they say that a lot in the movie, too. Yeah, somehow it had been long enough since the last time I saw this movie that I forgot that it starts with this sort of 4-3 TV commercial looking thing. Yeah. And I had, (laughs) here we go, I had downloaded a file of Westworld to watch yesterday because I don't have, oh, that that was something I was going to ask you. Do you have a Blu-ray or something of this? No. Okay, I because the thing about this TV version so the the earthquake Blu-ray that I have has the TV version with all the added footage that they always talk about with earthquake. I don't believe that there's a home video version of Westworld that has any extra TV footage, which is another thing that makes me suspicious about whether there is that footage. Or not. I'd love to see it. I would I would love to see all the stuff that Crichton shot. Yeah, it sounds really cool. Yeah, but so anyway, so I started watching this thing yesterday. And I'm like, oh no, this file is not filling my screen, uh-huh. and I had to like, <laughs> fuck with stuff. And then like five minutes in, I'm like, whoa, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I forgot that that wasn't the thing. And so I anyway, love that. Yeah, uh, but it I re- love but, that. It's like the beginning of Road Warrior. I always love that too. Like when it just opens up to the road, it's mm-hmm. just fucking great. Yeah, sometimes that's brilliant. And, and, and you, you know, I don't ever remember watching Westworld before and thinking like, wait, is this the right aspect ratio or is this filling mm-hmm. the screen? But I do remember going to see that, uh, I guess it's a Disney cartoon, Brother Bear. And when it came out Did, in movie theaters. <laughs> and that whole, that thing starts with like 10 minutes of, of a frame within the larger frame. Um, and I thought, well, this, they're showing this all fucked up. And then it opened up and I was like, ah, um, but, uh, is this a new movie? Brother bear? No, it's from like 2000. Okay. All right. New, new, new ish. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a new movie. It's a very new movie for our, for our purposes here. For it's your a new purposes, movie. Right. But here's two other things that that this opening reminded me, reminded me the opening of De Palma's sisters, which starts with a game show. Yeah. Which I also think must be in 4-3 for a while. Well, Sisters came out in 73, right? So this is the same year. Same year. Yeah. Yeah. But do you know what I'm talking about? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that opening of Sisters. And it goes on for quite a while. Right. Uh, It's this goofy game show where it's like, what is it called? Good Samaritan or something? They put they Good put the contestant in like a locker room and and then uh uh what's her name? Margot Kidder walks in and she's pretending to be blind and she doesn't realize she's in the men's locker room at a gym and she starts taking off her clothes and the and the game the contestant it's like a hidden camera show is what it really is. Right. And they're watching, waiting to see whether he's gonna stop her from taking her clothes off or right. just sit there and I'll watch. Just let it go. Yeah. 
<laughs> like a holdover from Dupalma's high mom days. Yeah. And then the other thing it reminds me is of all those interstitial, <laughs> all those interstitial commercials in RoboCop, which are great. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, RoboCop is perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And that should be movie number one when you do 80 movies you saw in the 80s. Yeah. You know, you've got that in common with that Jerry Slaughter. That's his favorite movie of all time. Where do you think he got it? Oh, that's true. You make a good point. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just yeah. kidding. Watch out. I don't know that Jerry listens to this show. <laughs> who does? Yeah, so, who does? Who the fuck so, does? Who the fuck does? <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, after that thing, I, I always think, and this happens every time. I mean, the last time I saw it before yesterday was a science fiction marathon. And... In a theater uh, or on TV? Have in a you theater. ever seen this in a theater? Oh, cool. I saw it in a theater, yeah. And that this was one of the reasons I went to the thing. Um, but I always think the movie is going to, like after the 4-3 the thing, I think the movie is going to open on an extreme close-up of Richard Benjamin's face. And it doesn't. It never does. And I realized yesterday, I'm just getting it confused with the opening of The Graduate. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. So... Yeah. So I finally figured that out yesterday. It's interesting. It does open on a close-up of the hovercraft pilot's face and the, and his sunglasses. So it right, is a, but he's he's got that that psycho, the, the, like the cop and psycho look on his face. Yeah. So, but it's yeah. not it's not the the look that I always think of Richard Benjamin, and he sort of has that look at the end of the movie when they go, "Have we got a vacation for you?" But I always, but I it's it's from the graduate where he's in the plane at the beginning. Yeah. So inside this hovercraft, we meet James Berlin and Richard Benjamin, who are friends or business partners. Again, he's so smug in the beginning that I always forget that they know each other. And it it takes me until, you know, they're hanging out and he brings up his ex-wife that that they're that they know each other, that, that James Berlin brought him along. You mean, you mean because Brolin seems kind of annoyed by Richard Benjamin's questions on the plane about the cold 45 and he's just sort of like, he's over it. He's just just so smug. He's like, I've been here before. I, you know, I've been there, done that. You know, I I know what to do here. You you know, I'm not a newbie basically. Right. Right. It just doesn't seem like something that friends would do. Right. But actually they would, but I just forget that they're friends. Right. So. I love that because uh, I, I want to. I, I want to keep pointing out the ways this movie is smart and well written and well crafted in ways that you just don't think of because you're busy watching an enjoyable movie. Because they don't draw attention to it either. You know, right? It's a, it's a movie that doesn't insist on itself. Right, but it's but it's these things that you rarely get to see in movies these days, especially sort of B movie genre films. Um, that the you know people who make those movies for the most part these days are like well, I'm not investing any time in coming up with better ways to say things or do things. Can I ask you what do you consider a B genre picture these days? Because as far as I can tell, they're A pictures like Fast and Furious. You know, I mean, no, those are I'm A thinking pictures. more of like uh, the um, those two movies where the blind guy in the house is invaded by teenagers and uh, oh. don't breathe. Don't breathe. And all those movies. It's a good those, movie. Yeah. It's a good movie, but it doesn't, but it, it doesn't do some of the work that I think Crichton was doing uh, yeah. in these kind of movies. And, and you know, the, right. the, the, and like those, those Liam Neeson movies, um, 
the movie with the the sort of the the, the mildly Jaws ripoff movies where there's a, sh- a girl stuck on a on a in a cage in an island. The shallows. The shallows. Oh, forty seven meters down. Forty seven meters down. Dude, I I defy you to watch those forty seven meters down. I've watched them all and not get freaked out. They're, they're scary. They're, they're scary. There's not. They're they're absolutely scary. But there are things that. I wish they would learn from Westworld. What do you think of uh, the Alexander Aha Crocodile movie? That's fantastic. Crawl. Yeah. I don't have a single problem with that. Yeah. (laughs) Although it's still, I mean, even here, I'm just going to give you this example. We get so much exposition out of the way with this commercial. And I think it's a really smart thing to do. Like you need to, you need to have this backstory exposition dump at the beginning of your movie. Why not make it, overt why not make it the text instead of the subtext or whatever um and, you know why not just call it out for what it is so that you literally are watching a brochure a visual brochure about the concept of this movie so that's great then you the conversation that richard benjamin and james berlin have on the plane is all about cult 45s and how heavy are they and what do they feel like when you shoot them and can you do this they start talking about the the, the concept of fanning your gun where you're like yeah. hitting the i'm sorry i'm not in i'm not on i'm not on screen with you it's but, called fanning yeah it's called fanning that's a great conversation that also tells you a bunch of stuff that you might be asking yourself and it also feels like the kind of questions that somebody going to this thing for the first time would actually have and to me it establishes that they do have this it establishes a lot about their relationship now it didn't work as well for you because you weren't sure that they were friends until later on the movie but to me it's like it tells you the story of them (laughs) i guess i just wouldn't treat my friend like that who am I uh, right, you're a better friend than James Berlin, and yep. but don't worry, James Berlin pays for it in the end. In this movie, he sure does. <laughs> Twice. Yeah. Here's the thing about James Berlin. I, I I have this. I've had this thought over the last five years at various times, mostly when I'm watching Josh Berlin be in movies. Is Josh Berlin? Has he now? You keep saying Berlin. You don't think it's Berlin? Berlin. Berlin. I don't know. Berlin. What. I've said it both ways. Berlin. How about Jeannie Berlin? Berlin? Jeannie Berlin. Jeannie Berwin. <laughs> <laughs> How about Berwin, Illinois? Berwin. Berwin or Berwin? Well, you got to say it, Berwin. Ber- oh, you Berwin. do? Yeah. Oh, okay. You don't know that? Is, is that from a movie? When somebody says Berwin, they always go, Berwin. It's a son of Sven Gulli. You're not a son of Sven Gulli. No, yet. no. Not yeah. a Sven. But I, I, I appreciate the reference. Mm. Good one. Is Josh Berlin a bigger star than James Berlin? ever was at this point he's yes. been in he's been in more movies i would think and bigger movies but he he he, he never he never dated barbara streisand streisand barbara streisand he never dated barbara <laughs> streisand no, streisand streisand, streisand. He, but he was married to diane lane which in my my book is that's why josh is better than you've than, seen this movie twice now um James. licorice licorice pizza uh-huh I've seen it once, but I've also seen the trailer a couple times. I don't know. I'm not hearing what Gary is saying wrong about her name that John Peters keeps correcting him. He's not. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking the same thing. Okay. I'm, I'm not, I'm not hearing it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's just John Peters being an asshole. Maybe that's he is, the point. He is it. great in that movie. I mean, you know, he's just, maybe that's the problem with the movie is, uh, it doesn't have like all the other t- movies that, 
uh, he's been making have centered around a strong actor doing a strong lead performance. You know, he's mm -hmm. had Joaquin Phoenix. Mm -hmm. He's had the man. Um, so, you know, maybe that's the problem. Well, that's what, interesting. It comes alive. It comes alive when Bradley Cooper's right. in it or when Sean Penn's in it. It's just, whoa, this is a great movie. Well, it's interesting you say that. And I am keeping a, a watchful eye on the time here. But to me, Licorice Pizza is in some ways Paul Thomas Anderson trying to do a Wes Anderson movie, specifically Rushmore. I feel like the Gary character, who J who Jim Healy explained the whole thing to me today. I didn't know any I haven't read anything about Licorice Pizza because I didn't want to know anything before I saw it and I haven't had time since I've seen it. But that that the main character is actually a real guy. Yeah, yeah. I honestly don't see how you can really enjoy the movie without knowing the backstory. Right. No, now that I heard the I, I backstory, I think that's one of the like, failings oh, of the go film. See it. Yeah, right. And that's what right. I said to Jim. I'm like, I need more backstory. Before Jim gave me the backstory, I'm like, he's like a Wes Anderson character, but existing in a real world situation and not a Wes Anderson world situation. I understand why Max is able to do what he does in Rushmore, but here's the thing. What you just said about Licorice Pizza and its lack of, a str of strong leads is exactly my problem with my least favorite Wes Anderson movie, which is that, uh, I don't remember the name of it, Midnight, uh, the fuck's the movie with the kids disappearing on the island, they run away. Oh, Moonrise Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom. I don't like oh, that movie charming. at all. No, because I find those kids to be so uninteresting as actors. That I don't, and and all Wes Anderson movies live in the shadow of Jason Schwartzman's performance in Rushmore, and those kids especially. It's like I don't, I don't want to spend any time with this kid. He's a bore. He's not a good actor. He's never been in another movie. Fuck him. No, I, but but I I I, uh, I don't know. There's something really charming about the way Anderson leads uh, leans into them being, uh, you know, not pros, okay. being amateurs. So it's, say it's, you. it's very different. So say I, so say, I. so say I, <laughs> but, but talking about backstory, uh, you're talking about the, the backstory at the beginning of Westworld. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. So he, sh I, I heard that they shot the, the commercial yeah, after right. the movie, they had to go back and do reshoots. So what in the movie during their conversation would give you enough backstory that, that, you know, that that commercial would not be needed. Imagine the movie, it starts with the hovercraft. There's not enough information there, is there? Well, I cut, well the, the, it, it actually almost is a little redundant, and I bet what there's more of is them watching that in-flight uh, video movie, that yeah. teaches yeah. you about Dallas. And I'm, now that you say that, I'm all for a Westworld where you don't get the information in one fell swoop like you do now. Like, I'd love for it to open it's with the 45. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was saying to Jim, I'm like, it's going to take I, you 10 years, but I said, it's on HBO. like one of the things was like, I made it through the first two seasons of Westworld and I still had no idea what they were trying to say that they didn't think was said in the 90 minute movie. Like it's just yeah. an endless, like, what are we, what, are, what are these issues that, that we're supposed to be uh, exploring? Right. They it's, really think they're turning it on its head. It's yeah. like, yeah, the guy did it already. Yeah. I get what you're saying, but come on. And right, so it's supposed to be fun. Isn't it supposed it to be should, fun? It should be. Fuck. God well, damn it. Not everything can be fun. Well, sure. All right, so they're in the hovercraft. Uh, they're in the hovercraft. Uh, we find out that it's uh, Richard Benjamin's first visit. 
we also get glimpses of some of the other guests, including Dick Van Patten. Uh, Dick. Yeah. And, and here's a smart, canny thing that Michael Crichton does is he casts a bunch of comic leaning actors into his sci-fi thriller. And so they play the first half of this movie perfectly within their wheelhouse, but then they also pivot into this much more sort of suspenseful, serious thing. And I think, I think it's great. I think it's great having Richard Benjamin star in this movie. I think he's perfect. Like you couldn't have cast this movie better than Richard Benjamin. Why did Richard Benjamin have such a moment? Do you think? Who the hell was he? Where did he come from? We were talking about this on another, on an older episode, uh, Mike and I, um, about this weird time. And we were talking about it with Kat Ellinger, who's this British woman. Uh, mm, yeah. brilliant in her own way. Oh, you know Kat? Mm, well, I don't uh, know her, but I've, I've heard her. So uh, that there was this moment in the 70s where sort of Jewish-leaning actors, Jewish-leaning actors yeah. who identified as Jewish and, and played movies where they were like leaning into that Jewishness, like Richard Benjamin and George Siegel, who were yeah. also, and Elliot Gould, who were also allowed to be romantic leading men at the same time, uh, you know, and then they could do both things. And so there's some George Siegel movies where he's like, where's Papa? Oh, but there's right. other George Siegel movies where there isn't that element of it at all. And I think Richard Benjamin was part of that moment where like these sort of Jewish lead guys were were able to sort of take center stage in for some brief and shiny moment. Are I mean, you asking about it in some in his like abilities? Like you don't think he's much of an actor? And how no, I think shots? he's really good. He's really good. But like when I was growing up, you know, he was in Love at First Bite and mm-hmm. Saturday the 14th. Yeah, and, but those are movies that were important to you, to your your the people who were born within six months of when right. you were born. That's, that's it. The only that's people who've ever even seen they're, those fucking They're around Saturday, me. You, you just know? called out Saturday the Fourteenth as an example of like a zeitgeist or something. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then he started directing movies, and you know, yeah, there was my favorite year. Yeah, but I, I mean, I never really liked any of his movies, and I remember seeing the Money Pit and going. Did you not I like my know. favorite year? I, I, you know, it's not very good. I've gone good. back to it's like, not very good, but at the time to, it was... At the time, everyone loved it. And when I finally saw it, I was like, yeah. So for me, Richard Benjamin was kind of like, kind of synonymous with this sort of safe, not very good taste, just safe entertainment, you know? And so that's why seeing in Confessions of a Mad Housewife was such a revelation. And, and, and watching him again in this movie through that lens rather than the Saturday the 14th lens right. was, you know, you could really appreciate his gift for comedy. Right. But, oh, so did you see, so do you, you couldn't have seen, if you saw Westworld in the seventies, that's before those, those goofy, isn't it? Aren't, didn't you, you saw Westworld before you saw Saturday the 14th. Right. But then Love at First Bite would come out and, you know, I recognized those movies only really registered on my radar because I knew Richard Benjamin from Westworld. So since I was a Westworld fan, like you said, I was by default a Richard Benjamin fan. And then I started getting into the stuff he did. I was like, wow, he's got really bad taste or something. You know, I don't get this guy. Right. Let's go through his filmography and we'll tell you, we'll, we'll call out where he hit the wall. Never to be 
good again. And Saturday the 14th. I, I, okay. <laughs> we've but already got it. He and I, she, I, he was on this show called He and She. Then uh, he was in Goodbye Columbus, which is, here he is. That that seems to me like a quintessential, like Jewish, whatever. So that's uh, where, that's his arrival, Goodbye Columbus? Yes, that's his first movie. Then but he was in Was Catch- it a hit? Well. You know, you know what I mean? When was he like, like that's the guy that's got to be in, in all these movies? Yeah, I don't and, know that there and not is just because that. he knew somebody. Okay, you know, I'm well, not trying to no, no. stereotype Hollywood, but you know, what wh- wh- who who did this guy know? What what movies was was he in that were a hit back then? Catch Twenty Two, which was not a hit. Oh, but was a sort of a major movie, right? Uh, then he was in Diary of a Mad Housewife. That's his third movie. I keep calling it Confessions of a Mad Housewife. I'm sorry. Did you call it that? I did. I, 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 I can't get it straight. Uh, then he was in something called that I've never seen called Marriage of a Young Stockbroker, which sounds like, uh, you know, like, oh, let's name this because he was in Diary of a Mad Housewife. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and then he was in Portnoy's Complaint. Portnoy's Complaint and the, something called The Steagle, which I've never seen. But also, these all these are all comic movies in some way well, well he's married to paula prentice maybe that that's what it was there you go then he was in the last of sheila written by anthony perkins and stephen sondheim anthony perkins wrote that mm-hmm. and then he was in westworld and then he was in the sunshine boys as sort of the straight man but is really good in that movie i think mm-hmm. uh and then he was in an australian tv movie that that seems to be like that's a real head of steam, if you ask me. Because Sunshine Boys was, I think, a moderate hit, and you know, every one of these movies that that I've just mentioned made some waves, had some right. recognition. But then he just the, seems like he's probably maybe is it really? He seems like he was a nice guy, other than Diary of a Madhouse Wife. He seems like a nice guy who people probably liked. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's just it like somebody like that, and nobody ever talks about Richard Benjamin anymore. Right. He's still alive. Yeah. Um, but but I'll, I'll bet he's a I bet he's a great guy to hang out with. Yeah. You know, to have a. Have he a was actually on the Gilbert Gottfried podcast a couple of years ago, and you can check oh, yeah? that out. Yeah. He's. I'll yeah, check that. I'll check fun. that out. But it just seemed like he was everywhere when I was growing up. Right. So like, then, what, what the fuck did he do? Well, then he was then he was on this show. Then the next thing he did really after Sunshine Boys, he did an Australian TV movie with Paul Apprentice called No Room to Run. I don't know anything about that. Mm-mm. But then he was on that show Quark. He was the star of Quark. Which I was don't like know a, that at all. It's a science. It's like a Star Trek send up. And um, I remember being excited about it because because of Richard Benjamin and because it was Star Trek related, sort of. It was a science fiction comedy. But I don't remember it being any good. And I think it only lasted one season. So Richard Benjamin, this movie like gave Richard Benjamin a whole new audience of young boys, basically, is what it sounds like to me. Yeah, All right, totally. I can see that. All right. Uh, then he was in House So what Balls. he did was Westworld. <laughs> yeah, Scott he did Lucas. Westworld. <laughs> what, what Richard Benjamin did is, is Westworld. He, any other questions? Shut exactly. up. He's Richard right. Benjamin. Who the fuck are you? I get it. Okay, I understand. Thanks, yeah. Ben. Way to that's break a, it down for fine. me. But I would say House Calls is the last legit movie he was in. And that's not even... I, I haven't watched that in forever. And what was know. James Brolin doing around this point? Well, James Brolin, to me, has a real interesting career. 
to me. <laughs> we were, uh, Mike and I had to do a commentary track on a movie called um, High Risk, which stars James Brolin. Um, and I was, and, and also, have you ever seen that Night of the Juggler movie that he's in? Dude, I haven't seen it, but I want to see it so bad. I'll hook you up. I'll send you a Okay. I, I am real. It's a great. Movie. I cannot wait to see Night of the Juggler. So, um, in 1972, he was in Skyjacked. In 1973, he did Westworld. In 1970, and he didn't work again until 76, where he, when he did, he played Clark Gable in Gable and Lombard. Because he's married to Barbara Streisand. Wait, right? And then, but then here's when here's when the real meat of James Brolin's career kicks in, as far as I'm concerned. In 77, he does The Car, which is great. Oh yeah, it is. Okay. And he also does Capricorn One, which I think is a fantastic movie and maybe the only good Peter Himes movie. Um, that's and, right. Does Capricorn one have a lot of Westworld elements to it? Kinda. Okay. I, I, I'm in the mood to watch it. I'm finally. Oh, watch it's it. so good. Yeah. Uh, then he did Amityville horror. Right. And then he did, Night of the, did Amityville horror. Yeah. And then he did night of the juggler and high risk, uh, which are two sort of like never to be seen again movies, but are pretty great. And high risk is good. And then he, then he takes another three years off. I think was he, he wasn't with Streisand yet, so I don't know what was going on. Uh, but then he did Pee-wee's Big Adventure in 85. You know, and everything after that is sort of like, hey, we're stunt casting James Berlin. Right. You know? Well, he was on TV for a long time there. He did that show with Connie Selica or whatever. You are was. right. I'll tell he, he was in Hotel from 83 to 88. That's what yeah. he was doing. Yeah. 115 episodes of Hotel. I've a never seen a single one of them. Have you ever seen no. Hotel? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, that's James Brolin. Anyway, this 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 hovercraft flight to Delos is intercut with, guy, <laughs> with shots of the guys in the in the control room, and I'm fascinated by the fact that these control room guys are not only responsible for all the goings on in the amusement park, but they also seem to be the air traffic control for the hovercraft. I mean, I feel like these guys are overworked, and maybe yeah. that's where the problem really yeah. begins. I mean, they can't get out of the office to eat. Right. He, he orders, what is he, orders scrambled eggs or something? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. They bring food in. There's a scene where one of them is ordering food, and it yeah. cracks me up. Yeah, it is funny. But it's also probably not the smartest idea to, like, have them in some kind of airlock where they <laughs> can lose, lose all their oxygen. I know. Uh, um, uh, color-coded trams take the guests to their various worlds. And as you pointed out, we... We basically get nothing. We get nothing that resembles an actual scene for Roman world. And I also question if you're going to create three worlds, which, okay, that's a nice number, West world, medieval world. I just don't know that the third one would be Roman world. It seems too close to medieval world. To medieval world. It it does. It sounds like a lack of imagination. Yeah, that's. What, what, What would the third world be? Well, what they did in that horrible HBO thing is they turned it into like a sort of a Asian oh, kung, right. kung fu world or something. Oh, that's a yeah. good idea. Yeah. That's a good idea. I mean, it's might be a little weird, especially now it wouldn't fly, but that's a pretty good idea. Well, now is when they did it. What else could it be? Wow. Mm. I don't know, man. 
I, you know what it would, you know what it would. Wes Anderson be? World. How about Wes Anderson World? No, it's what Wouldn't they you like did to live in Wes Anderson World. I would love to. I would, and I'm surprised that he hasn't teamed up with either Universal or Disney to create such a thing. <laughs> I can't believe those movies aren't shown on IMAX. Now that is a movie I would go see Grand Budapest Hotel on IMAX. That deserves to be on IMAX. He should imagine. Make, he should shoot a movie, a movie in IMAX in the IMAX. Oh format. Jesus! Of course he should. But you know what? That you know what it should be, which is what now having seen the sequel in theaters and more than once, I should know this. But is the conceit of Future World that they have a Future World where you sort of pretend you're an astronaut and you're in space or something? I, I can't remember. I mean, I remember. But that's what it should be. It should be like I, Astronaut World. That should be the third world. I remember it was on at eight o'clock on ABC. Mm-hmm. It was there on the TV guide. And I had the picture of it. I was so excited. And Peter Fonda had really cool sunglasses. Yeah. The really cool eyewear. Well, they weren't quite sunglasses, but you know. We this is our first this episode before. all over again. Yes. Which is a year ago. Oh, is it? Holy I got the, I got the, the thing in the, the memories on Facebook. And, oh. you know, it was all about Race with the Devil. So, wow. Happy anniversary. Yeah, happy anniversary. Uh, but yeah, I was so excited, and I think I made about I made about twenty minutes into it, fell asleep, and that's the last time I tried to watch it. <laughs> oh, all right, yeah, we should. I, I got to the scene where Yul Brynner turns around and his face is just you know all all the wires, and like he's back, right? Anyway, so those are the three worlds. For some reason, we have Roman world, but arriving in Westworld. Uh, uh, oh, first Berlin and Benjamin and Van Patten get outfitted with Western duds, and we get some the first taste of that fun Western style right. cheese ball music. And then and they until get, then, there's been no music, right? Right. So whenever it goes is, underground with the guys in the white coats, there's no music. Yeah. Exactly, and that's another way that they're they're thinking. You know, the the, the behind the scenes guys in this movie are thinking like, how right. do we differentiate what's the playtime versus the reality of the outside yeah, world completely works yeah arriving in westworld in a covered wagon brolin and benjamin take stock of their surroundings this is my writing by the way <laughs> we see townspeople <laughs> hookers and they check in at their hotel meanwhile dick van patten accidentally shoots his mirror uh b and b go to the saloon and benjamin orders a fancy drink and is reprimanded by Berlin. Uh, Berlin, 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 <laughs> Brenner arrives and bumps into Benjamin, starting a fight with him. Uh, I sloppy, love sloppy with your drink, sloppy with your drink. Uh, he needs his mama. <laughs> Get this boy a, a bib. How great is Yul Brenner in this movie? He's so good. And those all and almost all his dialogue is right there in that scene. But it's really all you need because he sets himself up with those three lines. and You're like, I'm in. I mean, he's fucking a great actor. I was just like, those line readings are perfect. Yeah, right. It's like, and it's really, you know, this is the dawn of the age of, you know, these kind of guys doing their iconic lines. You know, this is right around Dirty Harry doing his bullshit. And um, this is Terminator before Terminator. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Good point. See, you you beat me to that one. I would never have even thought that. (laughs) <laughs> Listen, I'm still in awe of your Goodfellas, It's a Wonderful Life uh, theory. Oh, well, thank you. Have people talked to you about that in the real world and said, well, Nobody talks to me about anything in the real world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're so sick of hearing us talk. Yeah. Um, 
But anyway, so so then uh, uh, Brolin convinces uh, Richard Benjamin to to challenge him to a, a gunfight, which he does. It's our first Sam Peckinpah slow-mo, our first blood squibs beautifully coming out of the chest of Yulbrenner, and we're off to the races. Um, Yulbrenner, he's so, he's good because he's also doing this, not quite subtle, but understated robotic thing at the bar, mm. you know? Yeah. And this is my favorite effect in the movie. You know, that every time anybody writes about this movie, and especially at the time, they're all talking about this was the first movie to do these 2D, whatever right. that shit is, yeah. that grid work looks, stuff through through Yul Brynner's eyes. Like an Atari home video game. Yeah. yeah. It, it, I remember sitting on the floor of the Hilton Ballroom being like, okay, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> let's get to the act. Let's get to another shot. I mean, it was it was serviceable. It was yeah, fine, but fine. I don't ever remember going, wow, this <laughs> is revolutionary. Yeah. But what is really cool is that whatever they're doing, and I don't know what they're doing, because half of me says they're wearing some special contacts, and the other half oh, is right. just like, no, they've just got these big eye lights that they're that are right off a camera that are aimed in their in their faces. But they make the the robots look like robots because of the, there's there's this weird glint in their eye, like a yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. So I mean, so uh, you'll burn it. Like, do you think? I mean, I guess people say his most iconic role is the King and I. Yes. And something I learned today, although I probably knew it and then forgot it, was that he they at some point in the seventies they made a TV series called Anna and the King that Yul Brynner starred in as reprising his role from, but like a sit, I think like a sitcom version of the King. And I. No. Wow. Yeah. I got to see that. <laughs> right. But number two has definitely got to be the magnificent set. Yes. Until this. Clearly, right. Which do you think this usurped that? I do. Yeah. I do. Oh no. I don't know about usurp, but they, I think that they, they make, they make a perfect hand in hand relationship. I think uh, I think the I think seeing either one of these movies enhances your enjoyment of the other one, right? And so the people in this world made that robot to look like Yul Brynner I from Magnificent Seven. So that's sure. not Yul Brynner. That's a robot that looks like the real Yul Brynner. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, back in their hotel room. Berlin shows Benjamin that the guns won't fire at humans, which is another nice, like sort of exposition dump thing that you need to know to understand how this movie's going to work. But they make a nice scene out of it. That's something. Those are the two things I love about this movie is that when they have to teach you something as an audience, they find like a, a nice way to do it. They're not just dumping it on you. Script writing 101. And... I, I, I will continue to say that I really appreciate the sort of laid back comic tone of this movie for a while because I hate sci-fi thrillers that everyone is always serious the whole time and they're all talking to each other in hushed tones and nobody's ever having any real world moments. You know, like I remember, what? well, I remember trying to watch the TV series that they made out of the Terminator. What was it called? The Sarah Connor Chronicles or something. <laughs> and every week it was just like whoever was playing Sarah Connor going, we need to pack up our stuff and get out of this room because the, you know, and it was always, it was this weird tension that 
became the opposite of tension because nobody ever took a break. And it's just like, I'm t- people don't talk like this. People True still Alice, need to yeah. go to the bathroom when they're on the run and things like right. that. Yeah. You still find things. In fact, people, I think there's more things to find funny when you're in the middle of a crisis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, uh, in medieval world, we get a glimpse of a dinner feast. And back in Westworld, the hotel dinner scene is more, I guess, austere. But I, but I like that. I, I was watching this at double speed today to try to write these scenes. And I was like, oh, they're doing it. I never, it never occurred to me before that they're doing sort of a comparison between this feast at the in the medieval world table. And then the, the... clever yeah, I mean, the, this movie was edited by David Brotherton, who had won an Oscar for editing Cabaret the previous year in 72. And his first movie that he edited was Unfair to Remember. So, I mean, the guy really knew what he was doing. But he also edited a movie that I love, and I think you love it too, Malice. He worked on Malice. Oh, 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 God, I love it. Yeah, sure. So the guy was no slouch. And uh, I, I think a lot of credit probably goes to him for making this movie work as well as it does. Maybe it's his best work, I want to say. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in Cabaret about going back and forth and yeah. making these two different. So he kind of was the ideal choice for, for something like this. Yeah, I like that. Um, at the whorehouse, B&B get hooked up with hookers, and Richard Benjamin has an awkward session with one of the girls... And I think I find myself asking myself this question every time I watch it. And I think I always get the answer, but for some reason I have the question again, like, are they trying to make you ask yourself whether these women are hookers or guests or are they machines or, or are they guests? Or are you supposed well, to the eye thing happens, right? The eye thing happens. I'm saying you do get the answer that she is in fact a machine, but for the first two thirds of this encounter, the meeting them in the bar, going upstairs and the whole conversation yeah. that Richard Benjamin has with her. I got you. But I never, I've never thought that they were, okay. you know, robots. Cause she's so shy and withdrawn. She I always, always think seemed, she's always seemed a little sinister to me though. Oh, like, I, it's always registered. Well, that's just to me your relationship like, with women. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but I think that's a that's a cute scene too. What what does Richard Benjamin admit that he's never? He's like only... basically he's saying I've never had a one night stand before. Oh right, he's okay. Like, I've only just met you. Right. I always think he's going to say nice like, and all. I've only ever had sex with my wife. I've only ever had one partner. But he doesn't say that. He just says no. Right. He's not right. I, he doesn't really come out and say it, but he does. Say, he does say. I mean, I've only just met you, so that's what I'm taking. Right. Yes. I like no, when absolutely. she leaves. When she leaves the room and goes, I think you're nice. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. But then she w- wakes up in bed later on with, with Van, Dick Patton. Van Patton. Yeah. Yeah. And I always remember as a kid going, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do we ever see Dick Van Patten after he announces that he's sheriff and he can't open the door back to his uh, sheriff's No, we, we don't get, uh, uh, you know, I just watched it, but were there any murder when the robots get murderous or were there any murder scenes in Westworld other than James Brolin, you don't get the, like the thing you get in Roman world or, or medieval world. Right. Unless here's the thing. They wake up. Here's a good question. I don't think the filmmakers are thinking of this, but they have this big barroom brawl the night before everything goes to shit. Right. 
But on the other hand, he's already been bitten by the snake. So things have already gone to shit the day before. Because he gets bitten by the snake when they run away after the jailbreak. They come right. back and have the huge barroom brawl. They wake up with hangovers in the bar in the morning. And there's all these bodies around them that I think you could assume. And I think maybe the film is trying to say these are these are robots. But on the other hand, what we've seen the pattern is, is that when everyone goes to sleep for the night, the cleanup right. crew comes. and gra- So there shouldn't really be any bodies. Right. So maybe those are actually dead guests. Maybe huh. there is real death in Westworld the night before. It's just that nobody realizes it. Right. Huh. It doesn't really (laughs) make sense. It's kind of a plot hole because the control room guys would realize it um, and they don't seem to. Right. And but there's nothing about like that they've stopped doing cleanup either. Right. That that things have gone so bad that they can't clean up anymore. No. The last thing we see before we meet up with the one guy later on is they, they do go and pick up that snake. So they are doing some cleanup even after okay. things start to go wrong in a bigger way. Right. Um, anyway, uh, uh, we're, we're not even there yet with this. <laughs> no, we've got 13 minutes. We've uh, got oh, 11 cool. minutes. We've got 10 right. minutes. All right, now you're putting some some scare into me uh when the uh uh the guests sleep while the guests sleep a cleanup crew comes around to collect the dead robots and bring them back for repair and then there's a long sequence in this repair shop where the lead supervisor who i love this guy what is his name alan oppenheimer and i was like how do i know this guy and i looked him up i think i know him from the six million dollar man He's the guy with the mm. mustache in this movie who does most okay. of the talking down below, you know? He's the one who's oh, yeah. like, hey, there's something on. But right. this guy had some career. He's like mostly like a voice actor. And he has done voices in basically every single TV cartoon from Hong Kong Fooey to Tom and Jerry <laughs> to Scooby's All-Star Laugh Olympics, oh, Captain Laugh Caveman Olympics. and the Teen Angels. Uh... On and on and on. The New Adventures of Flash Gordon. Nice. He's Count Dracula in Drac Pack. It's like everybody involved in this movie is like had a huge career in TV. Yeah. He's on the Smurfs. He's in the Little Mermaid. This guy, I mean, he's had, I mean, you could, somebody should do a feature doc. And he's still alive, by the way. Here's a guy, here's a guy who looks as older, older as anyone in this movie from 1973. And he's still alive and kicking. Oh yeah, wow. Yeah. He's ninety nine, nice. but he's he's around. Clean living. Clean living. Uh, okay. Uh, boo, 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 boo. There's a long sequence where the lead supervisor checks in with the repairs and discovers there's been an uptick in the machine errors. Uh, a group of engineers discuss the problems, and the next day we're in the control room and we watch the day begin from the control room engineer perspective. What happens Richard, to the night owls at this? At this resort. I don't think I'd like it so much. I can't go out at night. The whole thing shuts down. I. It's like L.A. I'm imagining a a deleted scene where they pump some sort of sleeping gas into the (laughs) thing and knock everyone out. Well, you really you're going the extra mile for these plot holes. Yeah, I like it. I dig it. Keep doing it. (laughs) Okay, I will. Uh, You keep throwing them at me and I'll keep digging our way out. Um, 
Uh, Richard Benjamin wakes up, as does Dick Van Patten with the girl next to him. Benjamin takes a bath. Berlin, Berlin takes a shave. Berlin takes a shave. Werner pushes his way into Berlin's bedroom, pointing a gun at him. Benjamin, in a towel in the hallway, kicks the door in and shoots Brenner through the window. Now, this place is really fun. As economical as this movie is, this is the maybe the one thing, and I love it, but I'm like, okay, well, we've gotten this plot point already. I don't know. Do we need another scene where Brenner is terrorizing them and Benjamin's Well, just to let you know that he's coming back, because like, right. when he comes back that third time. Right. Right. You know, sick it's the rule of threes. Right. Right. And so sure. when he's like, not you again. Right. Like, let me take this one. Yeah, yeah. That, you're and absolutely so, and, right. Right. And he shoots him, and, and this time... He shoots Brolin, and it's not in slow motion, and you no. don't get the squibs. Right. You're, you're like, uh-oh, this is real. Yeah. I don't think you see any blood until he, until you get the close-up of Brolin face down on the ground right. in a pool of his own blood, which is pretty yeah, great. great. Uh, Benjamin's put in jail, and Brolin arranges a jailbreak. There's more cutesy Western music, and everything is played for these action comedy Western laughs. Uh it occurred to me, I'm sure, not for the first time, but for some reason not for a while, that the closest sort of analog to this film from this same time period is the Stepford Wives. And I yep. think... I was thinking I about think, that too, yeah. And I think here's a, a hallmark of 70s movies and why they're better than 80s and 90s and especially movies from the last 20 years, is that these thrillers are funny until they're not. Like that they, the Stepford Wives is the same way where they are these sort of, they play more like these comic satires of society mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, and sort of lighthearted. And then, so then as we've, as I keep saying in this thing, when the, when the switch flips, that's right. Switch. Flips, you feel it. Yeah. yeah. You feel it. And it's a shock and it's a good one. Yeah. But modern audiences look back at the stuff and they go, oh, it's cheesy. I mean, that, that they don't stick is, around long enough. It's a catch-all, you yeah. know. It's like it has cheesy elements. It's like, well, it all does. We just shut up. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Cheesy? <laughs> Did you come up with that one yourself? <laughs> yeah. The, the boys escape jail and the town, and they hide out in the desert after killing the sheriff. Um, yeah, it, which is kind of kind of yeah. shocking when they do that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's the nastiest they get, and that's. Yeah, they're really starting to feel their sort of anarchic oats, I guess. Oats, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the relaxed morals have, have yeah. seeped into uh, right. West Western world. West well. world. <laughs> uh, in medieval world, a guest, and I don't know if we ever know his name, and I, I always think like he's supposed to be the king, but he's dressed more like the court jester. He's got that stupid <laughs> hat on his head. <laughs> but he, he he's been arranged. Uh, I can't believe we fight. don't get any scenes with his wife. I I, I think it's such a missed opportunity. I'm, well, really, really bums me out. Who is the woman who has arranged the the, the duel for him? Is that his wife, or that's a See, robot? I think that's a robot because at the end she's sitting there, right? I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe that is his wife, but I'm pretty sure she goes to Roman world. And their oh, deal was that they were going to go oh, vacation oh, by themselves. Oh, oh, oh. Did so they that have that scene, dialogue scene? Well, no. At the beginning in the hovercraft. Right. She makes know, that he, face. He, She's excited. He elbows yeah. her. Yeah. And he's like, "That I'm going to medieval world. And then they, you know, they relax. And he looks at it. He's like, uh-oh. And they're in the elevator. And he's kind of looking at her like, this bitch. I know what she's up to. Okay. And it's all done without dialogue. It's 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 really great. 
great bit. Yeah, I, I think these are some scenes that I'd like to see if they're in that longer TV cut because maybe there's more it. with him. I'd like to understand the relationship between him and the the older woman who sets him up in the duel. And what he is with her in this setting and why he also feels like he needs to fuck Daphne, who's like a lower, you know, cast. Because that's what he's here for. That, that's, what, right. that's what he went there for. Well, he should have gone female, to Roman world. To fuck female robots. That's what he was. And he's like, you know, it'll be more fun, honey, if we have separate vacations. And his whole point was to fuck female robots. And then he realizes while watching that movie... That's her point, too. She's going to fuck the, uh, male robots. Right. So Dick Van Patten gets elected sheriff or appoints himself sheriff. Medieval dude tries to get fresh with <laughs> Can you Daphne. imagine a, an election? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what did you do at Westworld? Well, I went and I, uh, I got campaigned elected. to be yeah. sheriff. Yeah, it was a good time. Yeah. Um, $1,000 a day to campaign. Yeah, at some point I, I at some point watching the movie yesterday, I went down this completely pointless rabbit hole of wondering for the first time ever. And this is what I do in my fifties. I start realizing there are probably questions that I've had in the back of my mind forever, things that people just take for granted or know the answers to. And for some reason, I've never bothered to find out. But I'm running out of time, and I should probably find out the answers. Okay, I'm hooked. And so here are what my questions: What? Why are lab coats white? <laughs> and do neckties actually have a purpose because all of these engineer control room guys are wearing the lab coats and they're all wearing ties so i didn't bother to look up the lab coat thing because that just seems like well maybe because it's you know if you contaminated it more well blood looks that? great on a lab coat it <laughs> yeah, looks <okay>. great <laughs> okay <laughs> and ties i don't know i think it's just meant all that stuff is just meant to to hide the girth of men, I think. I think ties and, and coats, it's all just stuff that older men wear when their ass starts to go and their stomach comes out. I can't see any other reason for these things. Yeah, ties are a very strange thing to me. And looking it up today, it is mostly decorative. Um, but there's some sort of thing that they were originally designed to like close off the top of your coat. Uh, so they're like scarves. Yeah, they're like scarves. Like fancy, ma fancy scarves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. But at this point, I mean, for the last forever or so, I don't see the point in them. It's strictly a decorative style thing, and and you think about it, it's really dopey. It's so stupid. You just, you just, I don't know. You know, people used to care about their appearance, Ben. We don't live in those times anymore. I guess. Yeah. Um. Uh, medieval guy. Oh, we got seven minutes. Okay, next minute. Next morning, boys wake up. We're not oh. gonna make it. <laughs> no, we never right. do. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here, here's the caveat. Uh, it's like we should stop talking scene by scene about Westworld in the next seven minutes. Then we can have a little extra time where we move on to like talking about a review of it or whatever we might okay. do. Because I right. found two things in New York Times which I thought were funny. All right. Uh, well, I have a bit too. Oh, good. But but go ahead. Yeah. We'll do it. If I have to All do right. some editing, we'll do some editing. All right. Okay. Famous last words. Uh -huh. uh, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Uh, okay. Medieval <laughs> dude tries to get fresh with Daphne. She rejects him. I thought Daphne 
for one second was what's her name from Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, but it's not her. No. Okay. No. But good. But you're right. That's a good uh, thought. Um, a rattlesnake uh, bites James Brolin, and this is our first real, real sign of trouble. Um, rattlesnakes in the 70s again i mean we've been talking about this since a year ago with uh race with the devil rattlesnakes in the 70s was like the the apex of danger yeah you don't see that anymore i would lobby hard for an un- and, if, and if there are local h fans listening i i think there should be an unofficial augmented music video for in the valley of snakes that's got some of this footage and some mm-hmm. of the race with the devil footage. Nice project. Great. Yeah. Or just all rattlesnake scenes from the seventies. Yeah. It'd be amazing. Yeah. Yes. Isn't there that Struther Martin movie where he becomes a snake or Dirk Benedict is in it? It's one of those movies. Slither? There's Which Slither. one is it? Well, I think the guy who uh I, no, I Slither think I Dave, think is a James Gunn movie from I think the, Dave Brotherton edited Slither after this or oh. some some movie like that. But. No, I think this one is called S- Yes. I think there's, I think there's S- a gas leak in here. S- it also was released as Snake in the United Kingdom and Japan. Snake. S- is a 1973 ho- American horror film starring Struther Martin, Dirk Benedict, and Heather Menzies. Wow, I never knew Struther Martin was in S- Yeah. And I think Strother Martin turns into a snake. I don't remember. It's weird, right? No, that's a reptile. The reptile was great. With, with the woman who turns into the hammer movie, she yes. turns into a snake. Yes. Terrific. Always. Uh, I'm doing my Orson Welles for you. Uh, I think it might be fun to run a newspaper. <laughs> I only do Orson Welles from those um, studio outtakes where he's yelling at... Uh, the, <laughs> right. The peace. Well, hello. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> peace. I wouldn't mm, direct any mm. Shakespeare, an actor in Shakespeare. Like I wouldn't direct any living actor. <laughs> Come on, man. You're losing your heads. You show mm. me as an English sentence that begins with the word only. I'll blow you. I'll go down I'll on you. They will down on you. Oh, crumb crisp coating. Mm, that's tough. Mm. <laughs> Doesn't. It's not. not pleasant to roll around in your mouth. <laughs> it's not pleasant <laughs> on the ear. Come on, gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> I only take directions from one person <laughs> under protest. No, you didn't say it. He did. Your friend there. <laughs> oh, my God. How? I mean, really, the laughs per second in that thing is unparalleled. Every it's line incredible. out of his mouth is there's not a single dud in that whole fucking two minutes. He didn't say it. Really. He did. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Um, right. uh, okay, so... Uh, and then it goes to black. Shh, we're done. Next morning, the boys wake up on the barroom floor and try to gather themselves. The medieval guy starts his duel and the black knight stabs the shit out of him. Uh, back in Westworld, the guys leave the bar and are confronted on the street by Yul Brynner. And now that's guys, great when he gets stabbed. And so this is the point when they go, that's it, shut it down, right? Right. And it doesn't work. Right. right. And here's the thing, and I'm willing to credit, what's his name, the editor. This is such a smart thing. 
we learn as an audience that things have gone totally out of control right before they bump into Yul Brynner on the street. So we know these guys are about to right. be fucked and they yeah. don't. And if we, do, if we hadn't seen the guy getting stabbed by the black Knight, that whole scene plays differently. And I think right. it's, it's such a, a surprise, smart choice. not yeah. a suspense. Right. Right. And right. I love that the way Hitchcock that thing. Yeah. Right. Right. And I love the way that Brynner speaking of Hitchcock, did you watch euphoria the other night? No. Are you watching Euphoria on HBO? No. No, 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 oh. no, I'm not. Holy shit. Talk about Hitchcock. I mean, this was this was great. You got to see it. The, the the first episode of the new season. There's something about somebody hiding on a bathtub that yes. I Yes, and okay. the way it's played is so good. Okay. Um, great. So My kids watch say? it. I, I need to get on that, oh, I guess. It's, I'm busy it's a great with show. Righteous Gemstones and... Oh, yeah. Well, we could go on and on about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I love the way Yul Brynner plays plays this section, as in, like, he's been playing your patsy this whole time. Like, he's had to let you win. Those days are over. I'm Yul Brynner, goddammit. I know how to kill you. I know how to win in a gunfight. This is how you do it. And yeah. the pride that he has, you know? Yeah. It's, it's something uh, else. Uh, right. And it's, it's a, and it's such a fantastic moment. He then turns to ben, Richard Benjamin and says, draw and Richard Benjamin hightails it out of there. <laughs> 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 oh boy. Uh, so, uh, uh, Brenner asks for a duel. Brolin accepts. Brenner kills him. Benjamin runs away and grabs a horse. Brenner chases him into the desert. Meanwhile, the control room guys realize they're locked in and their air supply is vanishing. Uh, and that's as far as I got I, with the line by line. I feel like there's more scenes of the air supply vanishing. I definitely think that's in the TV cut. Thank you. I agree with you there. That's the one thing that I was like, wait, wasn't there more about this? Uh, as in this cut, right, he just, when he, he gets down there and like looks through the door and sees them all dead. Right. Later Which on. works too. I gotta say, it, it totally works. Yeah. You know. So honestly, the rest of this movie is uh, is this elaborate long chase uh, through all the different worlds and into the underground. I guess we should. Which is basically the final third of Halloween, and it, like he he gets killed and comes back three different times, just like in Halloween. You know the music, all that stuff. Yeah, and but any but any critic who's like, well, then it just turns into this thing. I don't agree. There's a, the, this. I think is the most skillful section of the film as far as filmmaking. I think that scene out in the desert where he runs into one of the service guys who yes. tells him he doesn't have a chance is a great, great scene with a great. great payoff of him getting shot by Yul Brynner. and a great comb over. <laughs> yes, I love that That's guy. I, I need amazing. to research who that actor is. I've seen him all a million, a lot of TV. Yeah, a lot of TV. Uh, but, uh, oh, here's, but yeah, the, look how good the blood looks on his lab coat when he gets shot. It looks, it looks great. So here's my, but I love those scenes in the, in the hall, in the hallways with the mm -hmm. lights. Yep. Like it had such a profound effect on me. There was this church that I went to and downstairs it was really dark and there would just be these lights in, in the ceiling and I would just walk around downstairs and nobody was ever down there. It was dark except for these lights. And I would spend about 10 minutes before church every Sunday walking around pretending I was in Westworld until I got caught one day. And they're like, what are you doing? This kid's weird. Get right. him out of here. I mean, I think that this is a one-on-one -on -one cat and mouse chase scene that 
is as good as it gets in the history of movies. Uh, I don't think it gets any better than this. And it just occurred to me what it reminds me of. Uh, and I, I'm not saying it's an influence at all, but it, but it, you know, no country for old men. The mm. the sequence where he's in the hotel, yeah, it's kind of like that. There's that relentlessness of it, and the sort of like as you know, you can keep running, but this guy's going to keep catching up to you, and he's always yeah a step ahead and smarter than you. Yeah, it's, you know, people always like to attribute that to the Terminator, but this had a beat, you know, and it Absolutely. had Michael Myers beat. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that, that Carpenter saw this movie and it, and saw it again and again and again. And it was just like, yep. You know, there's so many little, little bits of it that just remind me of other Carpenter movies. Right. And I would say that, 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 you know, you know, Carpenter is brilliant at staging these scenes and i think this is a really beautifully staged shot edited everything about this the the sound effects the score the cinematography they're all there in a way that for me at least terminator never comes close to like terminator to me is all concept and no i mean the execution of it like i'm bored with the second half of terminator mm. i think it's a great movie it's it's, it's terrific it's it's not as good as Robocop and it's not as good as this, you know? Okay. That's but, all I need. But, that's all I needed yeah. out of you. <laughs> yeah. Well, what interests me. Okay. So, and then the movie ends and he sets Yul Brynner on fire, which is, that is one hell of a fire stunt. That it's terrific. It's absolutely terrific. Somebody had to have gotten hurt. There's no way. And the little twist with the woman who he gives water to turns out all to right. be a robot. That's terrific. Yeah. Here's my was one. Was that Daphne? That wasn't Daphne. Was no, it? no, I don't think somebody so. Else. Maybe it's Daphne. No, I don't I, think it was. I don't think we're supposed to know her because we're not supposed to know that she's a robot until it's too late. Right, right. But here's my one like, uh, hey, what's up with this plot point that makes no sense? Why, <laughs> why in this whole lab repair center stuff, why are there... Why are there, there are these old fashioned like bottles of acid all over? What, what is what is the what is their use for this acid? Well, all right. Look, look, permit me to play sure. the, yeah. the other end of this game. Yeah. Uh, so the guy says that the only way you can stop them is with acid. So maybe right. they have this acid on hand in case one of them gets out of hand. And, <laughs> yeah, just know, lined up they, on the shelf. Like yeah, that. they go yeah. here. Just pour some acid on it. <laughs> what up on your face? Were you burned by acid? <laughs> yeah. Like, for me, what's really in and interesting about this is all the crazy rhymes with Jurassic Park, you know, uh, and, and they're, they're rhymes that it couldn't have known at the time they were making the movie. Like, there's something reptilian about Yul Brynner's performance. He looks like a velociraptor. Mm -hmm. And like when he's chasing him around, he's just got that look on his face. Mm -hmm. uh, and then this movie influences Halloween. We both agree with that, right? Yes. And then Dean Cundey shot Halloween, and then he shoots Jurassic Park. Yeah. You don't think that's weird? Well, I think it's weird that there are any movies that they don't let Dean Cundey shoot. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, so another movie that you got to think that this movie influences is The Truman Show. Hmm. Like, you know, they're sitting there, they're behind the scenes, they're going, all right, cue this, cue that. And it's very much like, you know, Ed Harris in that moon looking yeah. down. 
So Ed Harris is in the TV show of Westworld playing sure is. kind of the same character, right? Right. So my last one. This was the first film to use 2D computer-generated imagery. Very famous <laughs> yes. for that, right? Yes. Jurassic yeah. Park would go on to revolutionize computer-generated effects work. Mm-hmm. So there's all these things that, these coincidences between this movie and Jurassic Park that are just beyond Michael Crichton just taking the idea and putting dinosaurs on it. Right. Well, for all of your talk about Carpenter being influenced by this movie, which I, I'm, I'm sure is not beyond the scope of believability and could easily be the case. I now Spielberg, you know, courted Crichton and went on to work with him many times over, not only with the Jurassic Park stuff, but Spielberg's part of the whole ER team as well. Oh yeah. So Um, that's probably, yeah, he's probably like, I got this novel or something, but I've never heard Spielberg talk about Westworld. I'd love to hear Spielberg talk about what he thought of Westworld and what, you know what got him excited about it because i feel like this movie is probably what turned spielberg on to creighton that was my bit my, my my great bit that i cobbled together and and I, it was honestly I, th- I thought you i'd get a much bigger reaction out of you to tell you the truth <laughs> wait which part did you think i i under Reacted to. I don't know. I just thought uh, you're like, oh wow, Dean Cundy. Yeah, whoa. I am I wild thought, Dean. C- no, I, listen, I thought there'd be a few Dean more. Dean Cundy is my favorite cinematographer, so that is my legit reaction. Like Dean Cundy should shoot every movie. Yeah, I love Dean Cundy. What I found out in the the second episode of this uh, show uh, when we did Beware the Blob is that Dean Cundy shot Beware the Blob, the Blob sequel directed by Larry Hagman. I did not know that. And there's some wow. great, great shots. In wow, there. are you kidding? No. See, that, that, see that's yeah. a nice reaction. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I'll put in a couple wow, are you kidding things. <laughs> okay. I'll, 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 I'll post-dub them. Yeah, right. Just put them in like, wow. So here's Vincent Canby of the New York Times Review of Westworld in 1973. Go. Michael Crichton, the young medical doctor and author of more than a dozen popular novels, including The Andromeda Strain, makes a creditable debut as a film director with Westworld, a science fiction melodrama. Which I don't know. I would call this a melodrama. Uh, is that your um, Dean? Uh, is that your Vincent Canby voice? That's me. Yes, that's I, I've never heard Vincent Canby speak, but that's my Vincent Canby voice. Okay. Uh, a film director with Westworld, a science fiction melodrama about doomsday in Disneyland. The film opened yesterday at the National and other theaters. The setting is not really Disneyland, but a complex of three resorts, Westworld, Roman World, and Medieval World, that carry some of the Disneyland, Disney World concepts as far as they can go. Guests at Westworld, for example, like the two Chicago businessmen, did you realize they were from Chicago? Did they talk about that in the movie? I did, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We should have talked about that. I should have forgot to write it down. It's okay. Like the two Chicago businessmen played by Richard Benjamin and James Berlin pay $1,000 a day each to realize their fantasies about living in the Old West. In a perfect reproduction of a frontier town, they can spend two weeks having the times of their lives in barroom fights, robbing the bank, shooting the sheriff, and sleeping with the local dance hall girls, who are like all other citizens of the town, life-sized, computerized robots. Crichton, the I think director... It's worth, I think it's worth noting that... They did shoot the sheriff, but they did not shoot the deputy. It is. It's always worth. <laughs> Was that good? 
<laughs> no. Reaction, no. No, I just feel condescended to. Sorry. Uh, my, my chair just sank. That was, that was my, my just like my heart. <laughs> yes. Crichton, the director, seems to have had more fun with the film than Crichton, the writer, no, whose screenplay can offer us no better explanation for the sudden bloody robot rebellion than an epidemic of, quote, central mechanism psychosis. Hmm. End quote. This basic facetiousness is partly obscured by the vivid and sometimes amusing dimensions of the film's anecdotes which are mostly about the peril of the guests when make-believe gives way to reality. In addition to Benjamin and Brolin, the cast includes Yul Brynner as the town sheriff. No, Vincent Camby. You fuck. Who has no more humanity wow. or sense of justice than a multi-cycle washing machine. Who's a machine? So that's Vinnie Camby. Uh, also playing that week was Walt Disney's That Darn Cat, showing with Dumbo. But more, more excitingly to me, at the Guild 50th was uh, a double feature of A Boy Named Charlie Brown and Snoopy Come Home. Oh, Snoopy Come Home. That's the best. No dogs allowed. Pretty good. You ever see something called Five on the Black Hand Side? No. It was playing at the RKO 86th Street Twin. Uh tall blonde man with one black shoe was in town yeah George Siegel and Glenda Jackson in a touch of class uh, Jeremy Jeremy which we've talked about on this show uh, was in theaters in 73 huh 73 it says turn off your television set tonight and go out to a red carpet theater Jeremy will make you glad you did what about now, Scorpio what about it that was playing in '73. You got me looking up '73 movies. Here's uh, here's my favorite. I'm gonna I'm gonna share my screen so you can see this ad, and then we'll get the fuck out of here. All right. Uh, well, first of all, there's an ad for American Graffiti that says New York is having a love affair with American Graffiti, and one of the pull quotes from the New York Times itself is quote a very good movie unquote. Like that's some big sales. It's not a very good pull quote. All right. I don't think I've shared. I I think I saw an ad similar to this once, but I'm going to, I don't think, I don't know that you were around and I'm going to share this with you anyway. Times machine, uh, share. So here's an ad for clockwork orange. Did I read this, something like this to you already? Yeah, we have, we've done a, we've done a movie from 73 before. But and so we we've looked at this. I but remember I don't think, seeing. I remember seeing the first part of this, which is like the people who want to see Clockwork Orange have already seen it. This presentation is for the people who don't. And then the next paragraph is: despite its great commercial and artistic success, we believe there's still a sizable number of people who disapprove of a Clockwork Orange and have decided not to see it. This attitude is typified, did we read this thing? Is typified by the famed film director Louis Bunuel, who recently stated, quote, A Clockwork Orange is my current favorite. I was very predisposed against the film. After seeing it, I realized it's the only movie about what the modern world really means. That's the so is this the R-rated orange. presentation? Is that what's going yes. on here? Yes, it yes. is. Okay. Yeah. What gets cut out of the X-rated version to make it R? Just the rape I would, scene? <laughs> I would think. Just the rape scene. Just one of the rape scenes? Just the singing in the rain thing? I mean, I don't know. Stan 
Gene Kelly anymore? That's a good question. I don't know. That uh, that movie's on my list. It's up for rewatch. It has been for the last year or so. Oh yeah, on your rotation. Yeah. It's coming up on your rotation. It's coming up. I was like, this is on on uh, on my uh, Kubrick list. After I I see the uh, the two hour version of The Shining in a couple of weeks, I'm slated to watch that. I'll get to Kubrick. Wait, wait, wait. Tell me about the two hour version of The Shining. We don't know about this. So uh, after. He went, Kubrick went in and cut The Shining after the premiere in the U.S. He cut the that end, was, right? Well, for England, scene. for England, he, he well, you're right. But for England, he cut 20 minutes out of it. So there is, a, so in England, when they see the American version, they're like, what's all this extra stuff? So the English version that still plays there and is on all their Blu-rays and DVDs is 20 minutes shorter. So last year... I was able to track down a copy that is supposed to be region free of the mm-hmm. Blu-ray and it's 20 minutes shorter and uh, I'll let you know how it is. Huh. So yeah, which think- I think would be perfect for people who've seen the movie as many times as, as I have, you know, it's like, all right. So like some of the stuff, anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of the stuff like, you know, like the, the, the child psychologist that comes over to talk to Danny, I guess that's gone. Oh. And there's a few other things that he just thought were extraneous and they're gone. So huh. had no idea this, this even existed until last year. Yeah. I, I've never heard of that. I mean, I, I, but, but, um, so this doesn't have, this still doesn't have the hospital. Have you ever seen the hospital ending? Nope. 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 I haven't either. No, it that's what I that. like to see. I tell you the story must of, be destroyed. Um, uh, I, I didn't tell you the story of going to. I, I went to two bookstores in my youth to have Stephen King sign copies of books that I bought of his. Uh-huh. And the first time I did it was mm, probably within six months after the movie Shining was released. And I got up to Stephen King, and I was uh, so that was what nineteen eighty. Uh huh. So I was yeah. like thir- I was like thirteen or fourteen, uh, and I got up to Stephen King and I gave him whatever books, and I knew that he despised Kubrick's The Shining, yeah. and I did too at the time. I was like uh-huh. mortified by it because of all the changes that he'd made, right, and right, right, the stupid shit with Scatman Crothers that I just I still can't wrap my head around. Uh-huh. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but and I said, uh, I'm with you, man. Uh, <laughs> Kubrick's The Shining is no good and you know he looked up and he's like yeah it's terrible terrible of course then he went on and wrote wrote a TV miniseries version right. of it, which is a billion times worse yeah as, that proved that Kubrick knew the case yeah right the, proved that Kubrick knew exactly what he was doing well I don't know if Kubrick knew exactly what he was doing but he certainly knew how to make a movie more than Stephen King ever will well yeah I mean uh, come on he knew exactly what he was doing he knew what stuff didn't work and he knew what to throw away. He really did. And that, no, and that, no, 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 that no. miniseries only proves his point. He must've been, he must've been pleased as a, as punch when that miniseries came out, just like, uh huh. See, told you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Stephen King also famously hates the dead zone, which is where I parted ways with Stephen King, but you might have a nice conversation well there's a nice story Uh, i had a a copy of the dead zone and i I took it to stephen king and i had him (laughs) sign it and i said i'm with you dead zone (laughs) wow 
He said, yeah, terrible movie. Now yeah. get out of here, kid. Ah, that's Stephen King. What a guy. It was a better yeah. encounter, both my Stephen King, and I also bumped into him on the street once. All three Stephen King encounters were better than my Coen Brothers encounters, which were always Yeah, I thought, you were gonna, I thought you were going to Ben Reiser it, but, but you yeah. didn't. It sounded like it went pretty well. <laughs> yeah, it went all right. It's yeah. one of the few successful That is not the ending I was expect, I expecting. No. Yeah, you know what? I thought it was going to be, yeah, you know what? I'm with you. I don't like the Stephen King version, but the one thing that he did do better... I must admit, and then you would spend five minutes telling him where he fucked up. Did I tell you, did I tell you talking to Paul Westerberg when he was signing yeah. stuff? No, you told me that. Which is that was the ending I was expecting. <laughs> or like an asshole, I'm like, "Hey, you're gonna play longer than an hour?" And he's like, "What do you want? Yeah. Blood?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be good. What do you want blood? Get out of here, kid. <laughs> While Tommy Stinson's over in the Bob Dylan rack signing all Bob Dylan CDs at Tower Records. Pretty good. Yeah, I've yeah. heard that story. Yeah, yeah, Good I know. Story. I'm out of stories with you. It's been a year. I've, it took me a year to tell you all to get back to repeating stories. So, yeah, not bad. Here we are. I, ha- I had a year's worth of stories for you. Right now, I'm going to have to start living some new ones. Start doing some living. Get out there. Do you remember that time I wrote Scott Lucas an email saying, "Hey, do you want to do a podcast?" And for some reason, he said, "Yeah, let's do it." Yeah, <laughs> here we are. Here we are. Crazy, crazy times. Yeah.